Hey everyone, welcome to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm David Brandt, and in this episode, our season four finale, we chat with Don Taylor, Executive Vice Provost and Charles O'Gordon Professor in Industrial and Systems Engineering at Virginia Tech. He's also the 2023 recipient of the Frank and Lillian Gilbert Industrial Engineering Award, which will be presented to him during the IISE Annual Conference and Expo in New Orleans. Taylor discusses his career path, the possibilities for artificial intelligence in academia and industry, his love for hiking, and why he enjoys going to the annual conference. And in a bonus segment, we gained insights from senior members of IISE as they reflect on their time with the Institute part of our year-long celebration for the 75th anniversary of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers. Don Taylor, we appreciate you joining us for the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Tell us first how you got started on your career path and what attracted you to industrial and systems engineering education. Well, that's a that's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a great answer, but I think that I've always been an industrial and systems engineer. I can vividly recall visits to the local cotton mill with my grandfather when I was really young, maybe four or five years old, and being really fascinated with the processes and the systems that he showed me. So it was really interesting to me at that time uh, to see these raw bales of cotton coming in from the, the field into this facility and seeing that transformation from raw cotton through all the processes to finished goods. And, and then as I approached uh, high school graduation, I looked on the internet, which in those days was called catalogs, college catalogs. <laughs> there was no internet, of course. And, and I was uh, attracted, I think, by the breadth of the profession and by the opportunities that, that breadth would offer to me throughout my career. And, and I felt that um, no other profession really offered me the opportunity to remake myself as often or as well as I would like. Uh, and just as I did when I transferred my research really from uh, manufacturing to logistics and the same with my consulting efforts. And uh, David, I really thought that ISE was a great technical alternative to business programs, uh, which you know I'd always had an interest in those technical fields. And my profession, I think, has enabled me to make a really solid transition from technical contributor uh, into leadership positions in industry and as a consultant and as an academic. So really, ISE was a perfect fit for what I wanted to do with my career. And I don't think I could have chosen a lot better. Now, when you were a kid, though, you probably had dreams of being something. And I'm not thinking an ISE was the first thing on the list. Give me some give me some deeper background. What was what was sort of the first thing with a firefighter, astronaut? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I was born in 1960, which was a, seems like a horribly long time ago. But uh, that was around the time of the Mercury 7. And, uh, you know, I can remember in the second grade, my first um, the first book that I read that was like an adult book, I think was one that my my second grade teacher, Miss Hay, gave to me. And it was about, uh, you know, the, the first American in orbit, John Glenn. And, and so maybe I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, every kid wanted in those days wanted to be a firefighter, maybe. And, and I had a really strong interest in physics, too. And it really wasn't until I, I started looking into those course catalogs and reading about the courses and that great breadth of everything from human factors through mathematical optimization and thinking, you know, that's really pretty cool. So that's that's how I chose it. And it's been good. When did you first join IISC? What was that introduction like? How did you how did you come across? And obviously we were 
under a different name at the time. And we'll get into that a little bit later. How did you first come across our organization? Well, as, as an undergrad at the University of Texas at Arlington, and um, I joined in, uh, I guess, the fall of my sophomore year, which was October of 1979. And I've been a member since October of 1979, nonstop. So, you know, it's weird to think that you're approaching 50 years in membership when you you, you don't feel so old just yet. But, um, you know, 1979, October. And over the years, you've served in several leadership roles as ISC, including president several years ago. Yeah. What impact has this had on your career in the long run? Uh, maybe in a, in a single word, it's just been huge. It enabled me to build a strong professional network. It enabled me to practice and hone my leadership skills, provided an opportunity for continuing education, and that supported my professional licensure, uh, which was a requirement for you know one of the jobs I had in the 90s. It opened my eyes to the efforts that were required to keep our profession invigorated, watching that professional staff in Norcross and, and uh, not really understanding how much effort that took, but both in academia and in practice. And, and that was that was eye opening for me. I think it enabled me to travel to interesting places. And maybe most importantly, David, it really helped me to meet and spend time with my best and dearest friends. And, you know, I, I often tell PhD students when they're graduating that, you know, be active in, in that professional, professional society. Go to the, the annual conference. You're going to make your best friends there. And it's going to be a real joy to go to those conferences every year. Oh, we certainly think so. Having myself been to, gosh, I don't know. 15 or so now and seeing you there, just about all of them. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, I, I, I can't remember the last one I missed. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you were president, uh, the Institute was going through a debate over a name change. Certainly, I remember the discussions in the, um, I would say, fierce debate over adding systems engineering uh, to our name, uh, which was, again, a bit of a contention. What do you recall from that discussion and that discourse and how was it finally approved? What got everybody or most everybody over to that side? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I was probably pretty obnoxious about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when, when an 18 year old or a 17 year old in, in high school is looking for what they want to do as a career, the word industrial doesn't really describe very well what modern ISEs do. I think that systems is a much better word and, and conjures up different images, I think, entirely than, than perhaps the word industrial. Um, a large majority of the, the the top academic programs in the country had already reached that conclusion and it changed their name from IE to ISE. So I think the time was ripe at that time for IISE or then IIE to take that mm -hmm. lead. So it was indeed contentious at times, uh, but but change is always hard. And even when it's the right thing to do, and I think another sticky issue is the fact that other organizations were using the word systems, and that led to some concerns that higher education accreditation might become a little bit more complicated. Um, the initial vote when I was president was actually narrowly defeated, and, and I mean by a very small number. And, but we kept up the educational efforts that would solidify the position of the Institute, that adding the word systems to our name would not only provide more truth in advertising, but would maybe even assist with broadening our mission a bit. So I think it's just a better word for what we do uh, in 2023. And, and it's, I think, a, a better description of the direction that the profession was really moving at that time. Let's talk a little bit about your research area and logistics of material flow and freight transportation. 
obviously supply chains have been a big discussion point, uh, certainly since the start of the pandemic, if not before. How have you seen supply chains adapt in this challenging era we're in? Well, I'm not sure they've adapted all that well in this challenging era that we're in. But um, <laughs> still have work to do, it seems. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We do. And, you know, certainly the world is is incredibly connected. And, you know, there's no nobody really lives in isolation anymore. So so a few changes from the start of my career to now. Um, of course, you know, at the start of my career, the Internet didn't exist. So so that led to all kinds of change. But systems are much more automated. They're much more integrated. They're much more, well, when they're working, they're much more efficient. Um, I think there's been a migration of standalone systems to internet-based and deeply connected solutions. And and the COVID pandemic has stressed logistic systems in in really unanticipated ways. And and I don't think we've recovered yet. I can recall, you know, before the pandemic started, you know, it's really easy to order something today and have it tomorrow. And and now it seems like um, you know, we're, um, I don't think we're all fully staffed uh, in manufacturing at this point. You know, the, the, the supply chain it had a pretty big stress and it's, it's still recovering. I think it's going to be maybe better in the long run, but, you know, we're not there yet. I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball because this is oh. another topic that's coming up more recently. The advancement, if you will, of artificial intelligence. Right. Where is that in in the realm of supply chains? Uh, what do you see as the advancements made or are there disadvantages? Where do you see the role of AI in supply chains going forward? Boy, I haven't thought about that one, David. You know, I, as an academic, though, I've given it quite a bit of thought about how how we use it in, in academics. And, and you know, um, I don't think it's the, the the big problem that that a lot of people seem to think it's going to be. You know, um, I think uh, certainly it can be very useful for idea generation. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that it can write software is a big productivity gain. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of professors, when ChatGPT, for example, came online, um, the big concern was that, you know, students are going to use it to cheat on their homework. And, and I guess you certainly could use it for that. It's my understanding, though, that the um, the detection software is pretty good unless you ask the AI to uh, write something that sounds like it wasn't written by AI. <laughs> and then, and I think actually the, the, the detection goes down. So I think it's sort of like the, the calculator. When the calculator first came along, I think professors, teachers probably thought, well, gosh, no one will know how to add and subtract anymore. And, and at the end of the day, that technology was embraced. And it um, it became a productivity enhancement instead of something that was a, a problem. And I think ultimately we'll find that generative AI is going to be the same kind of thing, that it's going to be a, um, uh, a productivity enhancement. You know, we'll, we'll have to be more clever about how we ask for essay questions on exams, you know, to involve personal experience or, or something along those lines. You know, um, one thing I did uh, recently was I asked ChatGPT to write a bio for me. Mm -hmm. And it did write indeed a bio for Don Taylor at Virginia Tech, but it had nothing to do with me. (laughs) He's a history professor. I said, no, try again. (laughs) He's a political science instructor. You know I mean? So it made a, it made a beautiful bio. Right. For a different Don Taylor from a different multiverse, if you will. (laughs) Exactly. For, For whatever composite this thing had put together. 
So I think it can be a productivity enhancement, an idea generator. Uh, it'll it'll cause us to think more about personal experience and and the way we apply things. Now the way it applies in the in the supply chain, you know, I guess you could use it to write software. Uh, you could, you know, I think now um, commercials, for example, are being generated by generative AI. So I think that we don't really understand just yet what it's going to mean long term. Even at the time of this recording, we're only six, seven weeks into chat GPT-4. So it's still just the very early stage. I think, you know, the question was inspired in my mind simply because of the fact that, you know, you asked me four months ago about this, I would be like, what are you talking about? Right. And now here it is. It really just sort of dropped on all of us. And, 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 you know, you even, you even have elements of the tech industry, you know, confused about where, whereas I'm sure all of us really thought, Oh, Google will surely come up with this first. No, <laughs> Google right. seemed to have, you know, slipped behind a little bit. But everybody, and it's affected how even in my profession as a as a writer, as an editor, coder, you know, it's it, there's so many different elements that it brings to the table. And, and but what I focus on mostly is brainstorming and productivity. So I'm finding that to be the case. Talking to folks like yourself that work in you know different industries, and for you who has both industry experience and academic experience, where you're seeing the impact of it in real time. Well, it might be interesting, David, for you to pull together our monthly magazine uh, using only generative AI and see if anyone notices. Oh, I all I think that does is increase the amount of fact checking and editing we've got to do. And we have a tight enough window as it is. Uh, <laughs> no, we're not there yet, are we? No, no absolutely. Want to move off screens and off technology for a bit. Uh, we hear from some of our acquaintances on staff uh, that you're an avid hiker mm. and you've traveled much of the Appalachian Trail, if not all of it. Um, tell us, A, if that's true, B, <laughs> about the experience and uh, perhaps how you applied any ISE know-how uh, to such a venture. That's a great question and a fun one, David. Thank you. I have to hike the entire width of the Appalachian Trail. All right. <laughs> the length was actually harder. Um, I would think so. <laughs> almost 2,200 miles long. But yeah, I think hiking is one of uh, maybe three great hobbies that I have. And the other two are woodworking and reading. I do a lot of reading, a lot of woodworking. So I did walk the entire Appalachian Trail in sections starting in 2007 and ending in 2013. I think that every person should have a grand adventure in their lifetime. And that was mine. And, and you know, that six years was a true joy. I got out every time I could, uh, did a lot of it on weekends, local here, here close to Blacksburg, and then used my summer vacation time to go off and do the distance stuff in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Um, so ISE skills, how did that help? Well, I think it did help um, because in addition to being a great physical effort, hiking the Appalachian Trail in sections is a great logistical effort. So. And especially the way I did it in sections, um, you know, and, and set out to do it really in the smallest number of years possible because there are other things I wanted to do, too. So um, given all my work related and personal constraints, you know, I had to use a little bit of logistics. Uh, I tried to optimize my hiking time in coordination with trail logistics. And, and you know, I'd reach the trailheads by in curious ways. And, you know, I tried to hike only one direction instead of both directions. So there weren't a lot of out and back hikes because it would have taken me twice as long. Sure. I would, uh, I would often, uh, you know, where I could, I would hire an AT shuttle driver, which were, you know, few and far between. Um, 
But then I had a, a figured out that I could take my bicycle and I could bike. I could park on one end, bike around to the other end of the trail, maybe 10 or 15 miles away, walk back to the car and then go get the bike. And then after I got up into Maine, I found out I was riding all day before I could start <laughs> my hike because there weren't that many roads. So I, I wound up buying a little motorcycle that I'd roll in the back of my wife's van. And, oh, nice. uh, <laughs> and so I rode a, rode a motorcycle to the other end. But um, I think an even greater challenge logistically was another hiking challenge that I just completed last year. And that was hiking uh, Vermont's Long Trail. And all 89 of the side trails that feed it. So it's quite a little network problem. And so a student and I formulated that as an integer programming problem. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, optimize my my time on the trail there, too. Um, I'm now serving on the board of directors of the Green Mountain Club in Vermont. So I'm able to apply my strategic thinking skills and good ISE skills to that position as well. Um, and I'd argue also that my reading and woodworking interests also are often outdoors based. Um, but in addition to reading about outdoor adventure, I also like history, political science, biography. So maybe that AI thing was right. But um, I, I do. I think my my love of the outdoors probably also motivated me to apply my skills to my greatest woodworking project, which was I built a beautiful wooden canoe. And that project took me about two years, but would have taken even longer if I hadn't had a little bit of engineering background. I have to ask if you're familiar with Nick Offerman, the uh, comedian yes. and actor who plays Ron Swanson. You, you you just spoke to all the things I think of when I when I think of him. I've seen him live and perform. I've read his uh, book, Paddle Your Own Canoe. Um, yeah. I just that's how that registers to me. So you're now in my mind half Ron Swanson. That's how oh. I'm gonna that's how I'm gonna think of you going forward. <laughs> I want to assure you, I'm not that cool. <laughs> no, no. Hey, to us at IIC, you are the coolest. Trust me. <laughs> Very kind. You're getting the Gilbreth Award this year. It's our highest honor. We hand it out every year. And we've had so many deserving recipients of this award in years past. What does winning this mean to you um, at this point in your career, just as a professional, as um, as an academic? What does it mean to you? Gosh, David, uh, you know, I think... Um, when I graduated with my BSIE degree in 1983, which again, hard to believe it's 40 years ago, but I certainly never thought that I'd earn the Gilworth Award. You know, I've looked at the winners of that award as being true giants in the field. And, you know, um, I fear that I have a little bit of an imposter syndrome that I don't really measure up. Um, but but it is in, in, indeed humbling that, you know, to learn that my peers might see me as being that kind of a leader in the field. Um, I always had aspirations to be to lead to the best of my ability. And I, I certainly wanted to make a real difference with my life's work. But I think really this is an honor that goes well beyond my wildest expectations. And, and I think the fact that uh, it's named for the founders of our profession, Frank and Lily and Gilbert, makes it even more memorable and more special. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of blown away by it all, David. I, you know, and, I certainly don't uh, compare myself favorably to many of the other people that have won it. And I just feel uh, incredibly honored uh, to have this as a sort of a career capstone. Well, we're going to give you a little more time to work on your speech, but I'll ask this instead. Uh, As a recipient of this award now, um, what do you see in the future for industrial and systems engineering education and how can it best prepare a new generation for future challenges of which I foresee so many? Yeah. Well, I think we're in a, in the midst of a very interesting time in higher ed. 
It's a time when people not only worry about the cost of education, but even question the value of education. And I find that viewpoint very, very disturbing. Um, in ISE, I think that we'll see more emphasis on systems integration and automation, particularly as we further the automation of physical tasks. But as we you pointed out earlier, we augment them with the automation of intellectual tasks through generative AI. And, and that said, I think there's always going to be a place for humans and systems, particularly in terms of knowledge creation. But that role will really probably change considerably over the next 20 years, what, what a human does and what a human doesn't do. Um, we'll need to find ways to keep higher education relevant, accessible, and affordable. Those are important words. Um, we need to meet learners where they want to be met with the right combination of online and in-person learning. The pandemic certainly changed everything, uh, you know, in, in terms of the way we work. Um, you know, uh, we offer here at Virginia Tech, all, although we still value very highly the, the in-person experience, we offer probably twice as many online courses now as we did before. It's still a small number, but probably twice as many as we did prior to that that horrible two-week transition. Um <laughs> We, we also think need to increase our emphasis on teaching adult learners through experiential learning, because I think that's a way that adults learn well. Uh, we'll need to find ways that makes that work accessible to all students, though. It can't just be the student that can afford to have, you know, an international experience or, or go away for a summer for, a, for an internship or whatever. We need to find ways to make experiential learning accessible to everyone. We also need to find ways to make it transcriptable. For, for the benefit of that future employer that's looking for a specific skill set and try to make it credit bearing whenever we can. Um, I think we need to increase our emphasis on the provision of stackable micro-credentials to make our graduates more marketable. Uh, I think a good example is the uh, the Six Sigma certificates and that kind of thing that we've worked with at, with uh, IIE over the years. Uh, sorry, IISE now. I had a part of that, didn't I? Um, <laughs> and we need to maintain strong relationships with K-12 to make sure that our students are adequately prepared for the mathematical rigors of modern ISC programs. You know, I think we've seen a little bit of a slip lately and uh, since the pandemic in particular with mathematics preparation. So we need to really focus on that. And I think finally, we need to focus on the, the application of good ISC tools across multiple domains particularly as the emphasis on four-year graduation rates might erode some of the traditional emphasis that we've had on engineering classes outside of the typical ISE curriculum. So we'll need to generate ISEs that can speak a little bit of mechanical engineering, a little bit of electrical engineering, a little bit of you know civil engineering. Um, so I think that's important too. Well, as I said at the top, we're marking 75 years this year at the annual conference and throughout the remainder of 2023. As we mark this benchmark anniversary, what are some of your fondest memories over the years, whether it be at conferences, with the colleagues, your time on the board, et cetera? Well, I think, honestly, there's probably too many fond memories to recount. Um, I, I certainly enjoyed pursuing a shared vision with other leaders in the field. Um, I've enjoyed visiting unique places, unique cities. When I was on the board of trustees, I really enjoyed that camaraderie that we had with with the volunteers as well as the, the professional staff. Um, I enjoy, and, and, and gosh, it's, it's just a joy to, to go to the conference and see everyone. I, I think um, I continue to enjoy meeting with the other IISE fellows and the, the conference attendees. And over the years, you know, I've enjoyed a lot of great keynote addresses. Um, 
I've been pleased to participate in the great debates and to attend outstanding technical sessions. Um, I think I really enjoyed being super busy and running from event to event during my time as president. I mean, you're, my time was not my own for four days. <laughs> busy from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. and maybe a little bit later here and there. And, and it was just so much fun to go around and, and see the enthusiasm that, that the people in our profession have, and, and especially for those that choose to attend the conference. Um, I think maybe the most fun I have is that first moment when you arrive at the conference and you walk into the conference hotel and you look around the lobby and you see so many people that you know. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, I'm just anxious to go talk to all of them um, and catch up a bit. I think I'm probably guilty of liking pretty much everybody I've ever met. <laughs> but but it's really fun to see other people in my profession. So so I really love hanging around in the lobby and you know meeting people and going out for meals. Uh, and maybe that's it. Really, the best memories have probably been sneaking out of the conference, maybe for a few minutes here and there for a good meal or a long laugh or a short hike, or, or just hanging around with like-minded people. It's it's really been fun all these years, and and I think it's. Fun's not slowing down. You're a giant of a man. Whenever we see you at the lobby or at, at the conference, uh, you're you're not hard to miss. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to lose weight. No, no, no. I sightwise, sightwise, sightwise. But on a personal note, I'm I'm always appreciative of running India. I, I remember back in uh, 2010. Um, I've mentioned on the. Uh, podcast before that I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor and and I was diagnosed with that just before the 2010 conference literally like a day before and so I went to the conference and did my job and I was happy doing so and um of course I think word had gotten out a little bit uh, that I was uh, running into some health issues and uh I remember I think you had found out through one person or another and you found me I think during one of the receptions I think the welcome reception and you had you'd come up to me you you said you heard and you were you I you know, just wanted to know what was going on. And we talked a little bit. And then every year subsequently for several years, I would get an email from you every now and again. Uh, you'd see me at the conference and you'd always ask how I was doing. Um, I was talking with Donna Calvert earlier here at IISC and she was talking about the fact that you just every now and again, you just send out a, hey, how's it going? Email. You have a very unique personable touch and, and and a personal relationship, I think, with all of us here on staff. And uh, we certainly, you know, have always enjoyed working with you over the years, especially when you were on the board. Um, so, you know, on behalf of the staff, I certainly appreciate you and your time, your your commitment to uh, to the profession and to the Institute. And uh, certainly uh, at this moment to the podcast. So, uh, Don, we greatly appreciate it. And I'm glad you're doing better. Absolutely. I'm doing just fine. Don Taylor, winner of the 2023 Gilbert Award. We greatly appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. Well, I'm looking forward to it too, David. And I'll, I'll make sure to look you up when I get there and um, I'll give you a, a big smile and a handshake. How about that? That sounds good to me. Thank you, Don. Now we'll hear from a few of IISC's longtime members who recently talked to us about the 75th anniversary of the Institute and why it has such a long record of success. We begin with a former executive director of the Institute, David Belden, who describes how the Institute became part of a national media conversation about productivity starting in 1980. 
term productivity became a, a, a national buzzword. In fact, NBC put on a program called uh, if, if Japan Can, Why Can't We? And that was done in 1980. And it was such an important program, and it really turned on productivity and the role of the industrial engineer that we decided to make a, a major issue out of it uh, and get on the news ourselves. We promoted a program in, uh, in, uh, in Washington, and we recognized NBC's achievement and effort in promoting public awareness. We invited the uh, president of NBC Television News and the assistant secretary of the Department of Commerce to come and receive a, an award. It was televised, and we made coast-to-coast national television based on recognizing uh, NBC for what they've done. That was a major step forward in getting the organization recognized. And because productivity was such an issue, and productivity is an industrial engineering uh, issue, we put on something called the Productivity Month, and we got organizations, our local organizations, and some of our divisions to promote productivity in some states through their governors and through major corporations. And not only was it the right thing to be pushing, but it was very, very helpful to the to the Institute in terms of recognition, in terms of membership and, and so forth. So that was a, a major undertaking which lasted several years. I don't know how it continued after I left IIE. But things like that, that got IIE into a more recognized posture. John White Jr., who has been a member of the Institute since 1959, shares his thoughts on what he describes as the blessings and curses behind being an industrial and systems engineer and explains how the Institute is a protector of the profession. There's been a terrific organization. I think that, and I have shared this with that student uh, regional conferences and things like that, that industrial engineering is both a curse and a blessing. The curse is the continuous improvement gene that's been some way implanted in us because we can never be satisfied. We know that we can always do better. And I think that we've had we've had great leadership within the, the Institute, uh, and that has helped it. If I had it to do over again, though, I would still choose to be an industrial engineer. And if I had it to do over again, I'd still want us to hold on to the breadth of our focus. So maybe what we should do is to be not only be satisfied, but to celebrate the success we've had. And we should be an organization that is measured by its quality and not so much by its size. And we have to then structure ourselves to where we're going to be targeting the broader group who would recognize that, okay, there are going to be spinoffs, but we, and meanwhile, are going to be the protectors, if you will, of the profession of industrial and systems engineering. Bill Hammer, another longtime Institute member since 1965, discusses how serving the Institute as a volunteer leader helped him develop the leadership skills that would later serve him throughout his career. Well, I can share the benefits that, that I uh, recognize. 
actually uh, it's given me the opportunity to uh, learn or to know and learn from uh, really some outstanding uh, industrial and, and uh, systems engineers uh, and actually to develop some great professional and personal friendships that are continue to endure. And uh, the other aspect, uh, having served in leadership positions, uh, chapter, region, uh, division, and institute, uh, this experience really helped me develop my leadership style and capability throughout my career. And those are probably the two primary uh, benefits that I would point out to any young member. Actually, it's kind of a parallel thing. You're working at your job, and, and, you know, you, you have some skills and education and so forth. But when you get a chance to interact and, uh, with an institute structure and the meetings and so forth and with, you know, all the talent that's there, it can't help but develop your skills. Former Institute President Leland Blank gives a tip of his hat to the generations of Institute staff, acknowledging their loyalty and commitment to serving members. I would like to add something that uh, has always been near and dear to me that I think people forget about a lot, and that's the staff. I think that the staff at headquarters from the very beginning of when I got involved have always been, all of them, the most likable and trustworthy and, well, let's just say, very well intended towards trying to do things for the members, not not just to get somebody to be a member, but to say, if you join with us and you are interested in working as an industrial and system engineer with the staff, we have a place for you and we will help you be successful in that place. And I know that's true for me. The people that I know, they're there now. I can remember a lady from many years ago named Lisa Zakin, and um, she was a person I relied upon uh, a whole lot when I was back in the president-elect and president and past president times in the 90s. But it hasn't changed. The people that are that are there now are much the same. And so I think we, as the membership, we forget that in universities and in industry alike of saying, hey, there are people who are the real backbones are the ones that uh, make this wheel turn and the cogs continue to be lubricated. Don Green knows uh, well how I feel about having a uh, a staff that's well-managed and, and has a loyalty dimension rather than just a job. Finally, Deborah Nightingale, the first woman to be elected president of the Institute, discusses the career opportunities she found through her membership, as well as what she believes it means to be an industrial engineer. Probably the, the most exciting part about, for me, being a member was all the people I met from all over the world. And when I was in industry, I was a member of um, CIE, Council of Industrial Engineers, which is what it was called at the time. And we had companies from all over the world whose leaders participated in this and I had a chance to to meet with them and to travel all over the country, looking at behind the scenes things at these different companies, including um, an amazing trip to, to Europe where we visited three different uh, manufacturing companies there. So it was a great way to network with other leaders, to learn from them, to also maybe share words of wisdom across those areas. And again, that just naturally then extended into 
my role as president. Being an industrial engineer to me means taking a large enterprise level systems approach to just about everything I do, whether it's for my work or whether it's at home. And it means involving the people in the organization first and foremost, but then also the processes and technology, the information, the infrastructure, and how do those all fit together as a total system? And I think that's what differentiates us as industrial engineers from other engineering disciplines who may focus on one of those elements, um, technology, for example, or the information. And we look at all of those as a total system with the people at the center of that. You've been listening to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Norcross, Georgia. We hope you'll share this and other Problem Solved episodes with your friends and colleagues. Learn more about sponsorship and advertising opportunities, as well as how you can become a member of IISE by visiting podcast.iise.org.